Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, L.A. Opera's Sebastian Paul and Maribel Musco President and CEO Christopher Kelsch speaks with renowned mezzo-soprano Kate Lindsay. Miss Lindsay was scheduled to appear as Melisande in L.A. Opera's production of Palace and Melisande, but it was necessarily canceled due to COVID-19. In this wide-ranging conversation recorded in early May from their respective homes, the two discuss several of her spellbinding performances, how she prepares, and what might be on the horizon. We're delighted with Kate's generosity that she's actually joined us today from her home in Brighton. Kate, as many of you know, has been with the company uh, three times. She made her debut with us uh, roughly 10 years ago in uh, Turk in Italy came back to us um, as an incredible Angelina in Cenerentola, and then her last performances with us were in 2017 um, with the Tales of Hoffman. I would love to have Kate back more often, frankly, than we do, but she's an extremely in-demand artist. So without further ado, I want to welcome Kate Lindsay to our, uh, to our conversation this afternoon. Hello, Kate. It it's works. <laughs> Wow, the technology worked. I was wondering, Christopher, if I needed to pull out my tissues <laughs> when you started. It's like, oh no. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be upbeat. This is a. This is a, a positive conversation. My, my my only sadness is that we are uh, robbed of your in-person artistry. Although you've been extremely generous to share with us uh, some clips this afternoon, so we'll be able to luxuriate in that extraordinary voice. And actually, some of those clips will give us a kind of some benchmarks uh, to really talk about about your career and what a career you're having. I think one of one of my favorite aspects of you actually is the contrast between your personal serenity and, and your accessibility and the extraordinary uh, depth of artistry uh, that you bring to the stage. And we'll get into this a little bit uh, more specifically later, but the incredible a zest you seem to have for challenges. I mean, some of the things you've done in the past year alone, I think have been kind of kind of astonishing and uh, really chapeau to that. We'll be able to see some of that footage as well. But let's start with just kind of reorienting our audience here as to uh, actually how you started in the business and how you came to the glittering heights that we find you at today. <laughs> here at home. Um... No, I, I, I was. I don't think I was destined for opera. I didn't really think that I, I was. Um, I loved to sing growing up, but um, in my family, no one really, no one studied. I mean, my sister and brothers had to take piano, so then I had to take piano as well. We sang in choirs, but no one really went after it in, in the musical profession. Um, I think mainly because. Uh, because you know you need to do something practical so I thought I was headed into teaching um, and uh, but my love of music um, got me into some voice lessons in a sort of roundabout way when I was singing in choir when I was about 15 years old a girl sitting next to me said have you ever thought about taking voice lessons and I was I started to think I was I was doing pretty horrible job <laughs> and, um, and she just said no I'm studying with this teacher and she only teaches classical voice and I think your voice is made to sing classical music and I and I had no idea really what she was talking about all I knew was that I'd always wanted to take voice lessons but I had no idea where to go 
or how to start. And so I went with her to a lesson one day after school and, and I sang for this teacher and she was one of these Southern, Southern ladies and she just said, honey, you're gonna come study with me once a week and you're gonna pay me $20 an hour and we're gonna study. And you gotta get the 25 Italian songs and arias and you know, all these, these books. I had no idea what I was doing, but she took me through, she was sort of the ideal teacher because she took me through all of the very basics starting out and all of those books all of the all of the things she gave me i still i still have and even now in this period I, i'm even sort of turning back to some of that to some of that stuff because i have the time to do it actually this is a this is a this is a good uh, chance to actually pause in our storytelling and actually give us a sense of actually how you're doing in this uh, kind of externally imposed sabbatical that you find yourself on how, how are you how are you maintaining sanity what kind of discipline are you exerting uh, with music? How are you thinking uh, about the, the time? Christopher, do you want the glossy answer to that? <laughs> do you want the real answer to that? We want the real answer. These are some of our most generous donors. They want they want the they want the real insight. Oh, well, I have to I have to preface this by saying we are very fortunate and lucky and I, I can wake up every day and feel grateful for where we are and, and, and what we've got and that we're here together. Um, and then I'll say it's just utterly exhausting. <laughs> but I mean, basically I'm, I'm full time with, with Finn uh, and he's two and a half and he's, he's, you know, he's so much fun. But, you know, I was saying to you earlier, it, by Friday, by this time in the week, my, my patience has sort of worn to its last little thread. And so today we were out, I get him out on his bike, and he wants to go the other direction. I'm like, no, I'm not giving in, I'm not giving in. This is for the good of the child, I am not giving in. But um, so it's this constant, it's this constant practice, but it, it is keeping me in the present moment very much. It's, it's intense and there are times I have to sometimes shut out a little bit of the news because if I, if I get, if I hear too much, it hits, it just hits really hard and I've got to, I've got to sort of stay, stay positive in any way. So I'm trying to be pretty disciplined with a routine um, I'm waking up at 6.30 and I try to do exercise before Finn wakes up and then have time with him. And then when he sleeps in the afternoon, you know, I'm keeping the bar low, but every day I try to give myself 30 minutes. I set my timer on my phone and I just sit down at the piano and I just pick up, I pick up a score. Uh, like lately I've been working on Dona Elvira because I'm hoping that that might be the first thing I get to do in January 21. I don't know. I'm sort of hoping for January 21. So I've been working on that and then picked up Idomeneo the other day and thought, oh, I just want to sing through some of this. And today I picked up Clemente di Tito. I'm just sort of, I'm just picking up things, looking at old recitals I did, things that I just, you know, I never really get a chance to just sit and play. Um, just I just sort of try out music again after some years you know, because because life has been so so busy and I'm always thinking of learning the next thing and here I am in this period where I'm not consumed about having to be absolutely prepared for the next job so I'm just picking up scores on the shelf over here and saying oh I, 
you know, I haven't looked at that in a long time, or I'd love to sing that in a few years. How does it feel right now? And just singing for myself. And that's, and I'm right now that that settles me. It definitely sort of calms me for the day. I need to do that sort of just to reconnect with myself. Um, it's so interesting. Actually, I was on the phone with uh, two orchestra members this morning and they were talking about th there would be nothing better, no better position to be in at the moment than actually to be a musician because in a way you kind of create your own solace. And there's, mm -hmm. something, there's something about the discipline of the fact that you need to practice every day that actually creates structure in the day. Yes. And I think it's been so disorienting, I think, for people who have spent a lifetime in the theater to be detached from the rhythms of the theater and the ways in which those pressures uh, operate on your on your daily life, but then kind of on the way that you think about the passage of time in general. Mm. Um, I thought it was interesting to think about kind of creating creating solace for yourself yes, um, yes. by virtue of that musicianship. So it's, yeah. uh, and it does remind me, you know, after after years of working in this profession and building and building and building a career you know, you get, you can easily get caught up in the momentum of it. And it reminds me that I just really enjoy singing. I love the act of singing. Yeah. And yes, I love to be able to perform, but I get, I do get a lot of enjoyment just from sitting here in this room, at, you know, at this piano and um, at this out of tune piano. And, um, <laughs> And yeah, just, tuners are not considered to be essential workers at the moment, right? Apparently not. I'm really hoping we've for the, the same problem over here. Yes, <laughs> it's pretty rough. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of which, so when when did you actually learn? When did you learn such? Uh, I've seen some of your videos of you playing for yourself. When did you actually learn your your piano skills? Uh, I mean, they're not very good. That's why I play very simple songs. <laughs> I mean, I would not I would not put out an opera aria because I just I can't. I can't do all of that at one time. I, I admire Erin Morley. She did the one of the. Oh, God, yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a great pianist, and so she can just you know totally play for herself. I admire people that can do that. Um, I studied piano growing up, but I'm the youngest of three children, and my sister was a great piano player, and I would get so frustrated that I couldn't play as well as her, and so I think finally. I asked my mom if I could give it up when I was about 11 or 12. And then I let it go for a while. And then I started just picking up piano books of music, musicals, things like that, that I wanted to play. And then for several years, I just played for myself and I sight read and I didn't really have any technique, but I would just sit and play for myself. So I still enjoy doing that, but I've, I've always had an issue playing the piano in front of other people from a very early age, I never felt at ease in piano recitals and that's why I wanted to stop, wanted to stop playing piano. So when you're, when you're learning a new role, do you, do you have a trusted coach that you always work with and is that person local in Brighton or you have, you have coaches all over the world that you, that you work with? Well, I do a lot of the work here myself if I can. Um, it depends on the nature of the role, but you know, if it's Mozart, stuff like that, I can do that, I can do a lot of that on my own. And then there's a coach here. I'm just 30 minutes away from Glyndebourne here. And there's a coach that lives really close to Glyndebourne who works a lot at Glyndebourne as well. And he's brilliant. He helped me learn um, Orlando, this piece I did with the Vienna Staatsoper this year. I mean, that piece, it was, 
that was impossible. Uh, there was no way I could have figured that out without him. I, I was constructing really strange ways to, to learn it, but, but I just knew I had to set goals and, and, and get to it. So, but I really do not like going to a coach and having to plunk notes with the coach. I just, I, I, that is, I find it, I get too frustrated with myself. I'd rather get through the messiest part of that learning process on my own. And then um, I, I guess I just don't want people to see the mess that I, <laughs> when I'm trying to learn notes. Well, that, that, that's very ironic, I think, coming, because I think, I think that one of the reasons why you're such a successful artist is that that unbelievable sense of uh, effortlessness that you bring um, to the stage. What happens to you when you watch yourself like that? Do you have the ability to, to uh, have that out-of-body experience? Can you, are you instantaneously critical of the performance? Can you put yourself back in the mindset or? It's, I've, I really, really struggle to watch, to yeah. watch myself. I mean, I I'm, have to admit, I, I, I haven't watched the, that Tales of Hoffman. <laughs> Like the first one from 2009, I, I really, I'm, there are, they're quite, there are few that I've watched. And I mean, if I were to be totally frank, I think that's a mistake on my part. I mean, I think I, I think I should watch much more often. Um, I think there's, there's sort of that deep seated fear of seeing it and then just, and then becoming a constant self editor. Um, and I'm, I'm very conscious of that. I, I really will not watch something when we're in the run of a show, but, um, the times when I have seen something, it's, it's when we finish the run of, run of the show. And I stand to learn a lot from it. Um, but I have to also be able to forgive myself and because I'm my own worst critic. So I have to find that psychological balance of being able to look at it and say, Oh, I'm learning something from that, and now now I'll build on that for next time, um, because I do think I do think I can stand. No, I think it's the rare person who who can kind of stand outside themselves and be constructively critical in that way. I mean, I think about sports, um, uh, you know, uh, that that watch kind of clips of themselves. It's very it's very technical, but I mean, in in what you're doing on stage, there, you know, it's. There is a technical aspect to it, but there's also a sense of 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 this out of body experience that you that, that transcends that. And I actually wonder whether I'm not surprised that you can't uh, watch it. And I, I think that certainly in all the artists that I've dealt with over the years, they need to be surrounded by individuals that they trust to tell them the truth and to get that information and in notes. But yes. there's something about like watching you on tape. It's it's impossible to sort of um, not insert self-consciousness which is exactly the last thing that you want obviously in, in a performance mm. yeah uh, tell me why you think that that that, that Niklausa uh, muse was a was a turning point for you in your in your career well I let's see the the first one at the Met that I did was in 2009 and I graduated from the Met's Young Artist Program in 2007 I believe um, yeah, I came out in 2007. And so 2008 was my first season out as a, as a professional singer. And, um, and I wasn't supposed to have that role. I think I was supposed to be covering it. I think I was set to cover it that season and then do it the following season in 2010. But what happened was uh, Gogu canceled Singing Carmen. And so Elina Garancha moved over 
to sing Carmen and they, they put me into this role. And it was a new production uh, with Bart Scher, uh, with Levine conducting at that time. And um, the stakes were high. I mean, I was, you know, at that time, late 20s, it was, it was the biggest thing that I'd, I'd sort of been entrusted with um, thus far. And so for me, I knew, the, I knew the stakes were high. And in addition to that, several months before I, I was in Santa Fe and I'd fallen on stage and I had torn a ligament in my knee. Yeah. So, so this was August and I had to be ready for rehearsals, I think by the end of October. And so I, during that time, had reconstructive knee surgery, was going through physical therapy, came into rehearsal with my big knee brace on. <laughs> and it was, it was just, it was quite something. And, you know, I was just sort of living it. But in retrospect, I've had a lot of people say, oh, that was the real turning point in your career, wasn't it? I said, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't know. But it definitely made a difference. I think the element of the HD broadcasts makes a big difference as well, because you're, the amount of people that see you at one time, um, you know, grows exponentially. And I discovered that, you know, that was sort of before the days of big Facebook fan pages. But I remember after the HD performance, which was just before Christmas, I came home and on my website were, were just tons of messages that people had sent after watching. And I was really, really shocked that, that it had sort of reached that far. I'm not I don't know if I would consider it necessarily the turning point, but I think probably uh, on paper, it, it probably is. Well, it's interesting in that, in that when, you, when you reflect upon the, the comments on Facebook, I mean, how do you determine uh, success for yourself? Is it, is it more, you know, going into those performances, you obviously felt a measure of, of confidence, but is it that um, external reaction that helps bolster that confidence in order for you to, to take the next leap of faith that you need to make in your career? Or is it, or is it, it's entirely inside the, the discipline that you impose on yourself and then uh, the confidence that you feel to take the next, the next step? Uh, full disclosure, I, I don't look at it really, really closely and I definitely won't look at it during a performance. Um, I, I do let Ollie, my husband, filter a lot of it for me <laughs> um, because, um, because it's my, I, I think it's, I have I have real difficulty uh, challenging relationship with social media because I understand the necessity of it and I understand about about being available and open for people to see you and maybe know something else about you. Um, but I I would rather spend time working on the art itself, and I think it bec can become too much of an over-consuming thing. Uh, in one's life and one has to spend so much time on that that then you're distracted away from other things so um so i i don't i mean i really i keep i keep my head down with critics and all of that as best i can because what we've built in that room is the most important thing to me what we understand together as the group as the team is always much more important to me than the outside noise and there are times when I can get a sense, when I come in for a second performance, I can get a sense of who's read things 
in the media because people's performances mm. change slightly. People start making adjustments to their performances. Um, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I even have a judgment towards that, except for the fact that I think, I think the place where I will find my deepest fulfillment is, is within the work and the project that we're doing and we're creating and finding that center and living in that center. And I can tell if my, my definition of a good performance is if I've been there, I've been present, and, and the energy has been flowing in a really connected way, then that's what I'm trying to answer to. Um, more than, more than sort of the, the chitter chatter. Um, because I, I think for me, it just takes me, it doesn't keep me grounded and I've got yeah. to find ways to stay on the earth. <laughs> I mean, to me, that begs the question of, so who, who, who do you trust in order to make the decisions about what, what you want to accomplish next as a, as part of the career, as part of that trajectory? What do you want to accomplish next as an artist? How does that decision get made? And that what what I see from you over the last three or four years is this, um, like in, an astonishing uh, ambition, a kind of uh, insatiable hunger for challenges. And I don't know if the productions that you end up in uh, pose particular challenges uh, by default or by design, but you know we we don't have a clip of the orlando but you know what what was asked of you in that um is nothing short of superhuman even by operatic standards and so just uh, briefly walk us through the process of how you actually determine what what the next role is and what the next step are is and who you want to work with and how how those decisions get made yeah it's it's interesting it's it's sort of been piecemeal i think I think that there was a big transition. I'm trying to think of sort of when this was. I started to make a real mental transition probably starting in 2012. I started adjusting things a bit for myself, the way I, I, look, at, I look at things. I think when you come through um, sort of the music education system and you go through the Young Artist Program, there's a lot fed to you saying, um, you're going to become this, or this is, these are the things that you're going to be able to do. And it's great to have those, those guides. But then, then there, I think it is important, it's important when you're wanting to become your own artist that there's a shift in that. Because what can happen is you land with a manager and you, as a young singer, and you're still trying to get, the manager's still sort of telling you what you should be doing. And, I was, I was quite down. I remember the summer of 2012, I was in Aix-en-Provence singing Carabino. And I was really quite down that summer. And um, I just sort of, I, I was really thinking about the future and, and about, you know, creating art. Probably I was singing Carabino and I had too much time on my hands, <laughs> which, is, which happens when you're singing Carabino. Um, and... And I came across an interview with Frederico von Stade. Um, it was Houston Public Television, I think. They were interviewing her. Maybe as she was doing, if I recall, um, a recital tour, sort of a retirement, semi-retirement recital tour. And they were asking her, looking back at her career, you know, did she have any regrets or anything like that? She said, no, I really don't, I don't have any regrets. And, and it just really hit me at that moment, that's how I need to think about this. When I make a decision about a project, I want to think in 20, 30 years time, 
what what project will I have been more proud of, mm. of having taken on? Um, and that totally shifted things for me. I didn't, I really didn't want to take maybe like the easy project for the easy money because I already know it or I've already done the production. I, I, it, it reminded me um, how finite all of it is. Age will always get the best of us in this business. The voice will change. It will grow older. Um, I will move into different roles and then one day, you know, just not be able to sing these things. So how, during this time, how do I want to spend that time? And so it's much more for me about, about um, the people that are there in the room, you know, the conductor you get to work with, the director, the sense of the piece, um, I and and feeling challenged because I, when I'm at the end of that road, I want to look back and say, to feel like I, I was able to squeeze everything from from those experiences, and so that's that's how I make decisions a lot more. Um, and then it it encouraged me um, through that process in the next few years. I really started saying to myself and to everyone you know, around me that works with me, I don't wanna make decisions based on fear. I don't want fear to guide me. So if I see that gap in, my, in the season, I don't wanna just take something to fill up the time because inevitably you know, something else could have potentially worked that I'll feel heartbroken to have to say no to, or inevitably something would have worked out. And so I don't want to just fill up the calendar to fill up the calendar. I, I want to think about how, how that time is spent because we can always find interesting things to do if we're motivated to do well, it. Well, I love the intentionality of that and the fact that, that, that you're, not, you're not waiting for the phone to ring, right? You, you have a clear vision of what you want to accomplish as an artist and, and you're, you're setting a path to making sure that that's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The challenges that are placed before you as a singing uh, actress as opposed to just, just a gorgeous voice, um, because both productions, uh, asked an unusual amount of you um, on the acting side of the equation. Yeah, so Jan Lauers, who was directing this, um, had never directed opera before. Um, and so we all walked in on day one. Well, I should say first, the dancers had already been working for at least two weeks, if not longer. They, they, the dancers had been a part of a, an arts inst institute uh, located in Salzburg. So they had been studying there for a couple of years. And in association with that institute, they hired these dancers to come and do to this production. So they had been working really hard for probably a month, I think. And, um, and they'd been forming ideas. And Jan's, um, Jan is the founder of the Need Company in Belgium. And it's all very much based on sort of the, um, I say 1970s, 1980s approach to theater, you know, where it's very free form, nothing is ever terribly defined. Um, everything should be based on what you're feeling in the moment and then everyone reacts to that. And that was the sense of what he wanted to have in, in this piece. 
And for a group of opera singers arriving on day one, they said, okay, we're going to do a warm up every day. And we always started with a warm up. We realized we definitely needed to bring a change of clothes uh, for that, for that warm up because it got quite sweaty. So all of us with the dancers, we would all be moving around, working in weird ways, learning to, to be able to touch each other and connect in and out of any sort of hierarchy within the group. There was no sense of, you know, these are the soloists and these are the dancers. We were, we were really meant to try to meld together as much as possible. And then I really got the sense with Jan, it was a sense of, um, he gave me his thoughts about, about Nero, his, his perspectives on who, who this person is, what he's thinking, and then, and then he said, go. And, and we just, we had to improvise and we were improvising with these bodies that were sort of roaming around stage who had sort of had a plan of action that they'd devised in the few weeks before. But it was sort of complete experimentation. We were on the stage, on the set from day one, working on the set, um, which was very rare to have that. And there were some really heated moments with the singers where, where the singers just, said, I don't know what to do and I need your feedback. Was that good? Did you like it? And I just, I sort of realized with him and in this experience, what my job was, because everyone was starting to really get quite nervous and to be quite frank, Sonia wasn't there yet. We didn't have a, a pope. We had a cover that was working with us for a lot of that time. And so I just realized, I think what we have to do if we tiptoe into this concept, then we're, we're going to be apologizing for it the whole time. So we can't apologize for the craziness of it. And so at that point, I just sort of let it go physically in rehearsals. And I, and I just said, I'm going to see how far I can push it until he tells me, okay, you don't have to go any further because then, then we know the scope. And I think when, when one of us could, do that, then it allowed everyone else to realize that we, we could just go there and try to find it. Um, and I, I didn't mind that way of working, actually. I sort of liked, I, I, I appreciated the fact that the boundaries were completely open and we were encouraged to use the dancers and use their bodies in any way. They basically, one day they come in and there's just blood all over them. What do we do with that? You know, <laughs> you know, or they're just taking off their clothes. Well, what do we do with that? And what is, what is our character, what is our character's position within that group as well? And it was hard. It's hard to treat people and people's bodies so violently, but everyone understood what, what the purpose was. Um, and I found it really liberating, um, challenging, but liberating as well. Yeah, I'm sort of interested in whether that experimentation and that, the freedom that is afforded by a process like that um, then spills over to your process later on. You were also um, required to sing an aria while doing a plank, Agrippina from the Metropolitan Opera. And for those of us who try to do a plank, the, 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 the amount of discipline that's required of that is... Uh, is in fact nothing short of superhuman. So is there any way that the, the experience with Popea then, then spills over to a subsequent project 
that gives you confidence or freedom or informs your your uh, process. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, number one, the Bopea uh, doing that sort of it was an experience in which I I really had to sort of take a leadership role in a group, and I I knew that I knew that people were sort of depending on on someone to to sort of take the first steps forward. And so, um, and plus it's the role of Nero and Nero is um, a fascinating and terribly complicated figure as well. Um, but what was interesting in the Agrippina that we did at the Met was that it was heavily choreographed. I mean, ev everything was very, very meticulously choreographed. But what I learned with, with David, working with David McVicker, um, with the Agrippina is that we started out with with that um, strict choreography but as 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 I started to learn more about the subtext under that I, I needed him to sort of fill in for me the the thoughts under some of these strange moves um, and once once we once I understood that subtext and then started playing with it it started to meld into the body in a different way and they were okay with it because it was all within the sensibility of that character. And so I've, I've continuously discovered that, you know, with, with directors, oftentimes you think, oh no, I've got, I'm very limited physically, but I think they begin to trust that if you understand, if you understand the sense of what they're trying to get at, and if you're, if you're remaining with the subtext, of the of of the the character and the physicality then they allow that to open and blossom a little bit into the individual i've had times where i've had to do a reproduction of something that was built for someone else and i found that really really frustrating if there hasn't been a level of flexibility because i can feel the originators sort of spirit and and um physicality throughout the whole thing and i have to find i have to find my ways to into to impose something of you know myself and interpretation into it well i mean i, I mean what I, what I love about that description actually is it's it's an apt description of the the process of a saying a role in opera anyway right which is that you're always stepping into the shoes of in some cases hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of singers that have yeah. done that in that way and then the trick is how do you bring uh, the extraordinary and unique gifts of Kate Lindsay to that that specifically I want to talk a little bit about this extraordinary new album uh, that you've released uh, called Ariana um, and the unifying theme of that is the the, the Cretan uh, princess which we know is Ariadne you know we talk we talk a lot about the the soul-stirring transcendence of of music and i have to say every single time i just find it so moving and i i love the entire album and i love the concept and i love if you could just describe the thinking behind uh, arranging those three cantatas in that way uh well first i have to do a, a small little shout out to mark stern because he um he helped those musicians get paid so Ooh, i just extraordinary. Big, I had no idea. That's wonderful. A big thank you to him because we were able to. Be, he he helped us a little bit uh, in terms of 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 uh, getting getting musicians in and and uh, and getting them taken care of. 
Um, and Ollie, my husband, made that video uh, for the album. Um, so he, he makes documentaries and um, it was a labor of love because his discs are made on, on a penny and a pinky <laughs> these days. Um, and so he came in and did that. We recorded that at the end of August this past year. Um, we had two days of rehearsal and three days of recording. And, and it, was, it was incredible um, because it was all these musicians that that came together they work with johnny cohen the the conductor and um and we we put it together in that in that church and it was really it was really quite something i i had wanted to do the haydn ariana i was really interested in doing that and the way i try to think about programs is i i have to find one thing that i feel very very committed to doing and then i want to build around that um, I think about that because I used to avidly watch the Today Show in the mornings and there was one morning where they had someone on the Today Show talking about decorating a room and starting from one little item that you love and building around that. And I thought, ah, that's probably how I should think about a recital program. That's probably how I should think about programming in general because I always feel so overwhelmed by all the choices, all the things that you could do, that it's, 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 it sort of paralyzes me into not being able to do anything. So if I can find one thing that I feel really committed to, then I, then I can sort of build around it in that way. And I knew I wanted I to- I feel reasonably certain that that's the first time that the Today Show has ever been <laughs> credited with inspiring <laughs> such an extraordinary recording, but chapeau to them. I'm try. I you know I look for inspiration anywhere, <laughs> anywhere, especially when I'm feeling really panicked. <laughs> I'm I'm whisp I'm waiting for the whispers to come. Um, but Jonathan Cohen, he's a really really gifted conductor and musician, and I met him uh, was it over ten years ago in 2008 when I was making my European debut at Opera Lille, singing uh, the Marriage of Figaro. He was assisting Emmanuel Ayim during that time. And it was a young cast. And so at the end of rehearsal every day, we'd all go to the, to the little pub right by the stage door and sit and have a beer and talk. It was a really lovely time. And I got to know Johnny during that time. And he, he talked about very clearly his dream for building an orchestra. And, um, and it was, I could just see the way he described it. It was very clear in his mind. He knew he could do it. He knew he could make it happen. He had no idea how, but he knew he was going to do it one day. And I think it was three years later that Arcangelo was starting to, was starting to do concerts and they, they record a lot and it's, um, they're a really gifted group. And he's, I, I like working with him because it's a very collaborative process. Um, and, and it feels especially with that recording, it felt as though everyone in the room was what it felt. It just it was a chamber music experience from the bigger sort of orchestra of the Haydn down to just the four players for the Scarlatti. Um, it was, it was a really intimate experience and working with musicians like that who don't, a lot of these musicians play for Archangelo, then they play for English concerts, orchestra, they play with these period orchestras, they're playing sort of 
all over the place with very, very superior orchestras. And for them, they don't have any job protection. So they know, they know all the rest depends on, on sort of the excellence with which they can offer and give in that moment in that day. Um, and it, it changes the stakes. Everyone has, has, a, has a sort of a, a deep stock in the success of it. Uh, it was just, it's, it was a really beautiful experience. I'm, I'm glad it's, it's been enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure we'll we'll send a, a link um, to uh, Apple Music and to Spotify for people to be able to listen to it because it really it really is such a gorgeous recording. And Kate, I adore you. I think you're an extraordinary artist. I'm heartbroken um, that we didn't get to hear your melisande, but I can't wait for you to come back to the company. And I'm so grateful for your generosity with us uh, today. And I'm so grateful to the generosity of everyone that joined us this afternoon. Yeah. Uh, be safe and be well. And uh, we wish you all the best, and we can't wait to be back in in, uh, in personal touch with everyone. So, um, thank you all so much, and have a have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Kate. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.